heard about an elderly couple one time, you know, a couple that had been married since they were teenagers and they lived their whole life together. They passed away on the very same day and they found themselves standing at the pearly gates and St. Peter came out to welcome them. So you know this is a true story, what I'm telling you. And, and so Peter welcomed them into heaven and he said, let me show you around. And the first place he took them was their new mansion. And the couple walked through the front door and just the, the enormity of it, just how incredible the luxury of this place. And the husband, his mouth just hit the floor. He couldn't believe <clears throat> that of this pl- a place like this even existed. And so he said to Peter, how much does it cost every night to stay here? And Peter said, well, you must not understand. This is heaven. This is your reward. It doesn't cost anything to stay here. So as they continued the tour of the mansion, they walked into the dining room, and and there was this table there, this huge table. And on this table was every kind of wonderful food that they could imagine. All the foods that they loved while they were on earth, and then new foods they hadn't seen, but it was all just incredible. And and again, the man was just drooling over this table of food, and he goes, what what do meals cost in heaven? And Peter said, well, there's no cost in heaven. This is all free. This is all part of your reward. He said, let me show you out back. They walked outside, and there before the husband laid this beautiful golf course, the most beautiful golf course he had ever seen. He was an avid golfer when he was alive, and and, and, and like you get to play golf for all eternity. And Peter said, let me just stop you before you ask. There is no cost involved. You don't have to pay. There's no green fees. You can play whenever you want. It's, It's a wonderful course. And right then, the man who was an avid golfer while he was living, he got a very angry look on his face and he looked at his wife who was by his side and he said, you and your confounded bran muffins, I could have been here 10 years ago if it wasn't for you. I'll tell you, I'm looking forward to heaven. How about you? You know, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. It's going to be, the Bible tells us, beyond anything that we can imagine. We are in a series right now called The Afterlife, and we're talking about heaven. We're talking about these kinds of things. And as a church, we're examining what the Bible tells us happens after the grave. And there's a question that's been hovering over this series. What happens one minute after you die? Now, that is a fascinating question, isn't it? We've all thought about it. This world has a fascination with it. We have been exploring this fascination um, in this series. You know, we see it in TV and movies. Every Halloween, there's a heightened fascination with the afterlife. We've talked last week a little bit about um, near-death experiences and what those are and what they may or may not mean. And we've talked about uh, um, how people have tried to get a peek beyond the veil, like by visiting mediums and how that's a, that's a detestable thing to God. There, there's just a lot of fascination. But at the end of the day, and I hope that this is very clear in this series, that the only glimpse that we could ever get behind the veil that has any validity or any truth to it at all will be the glimpse that the Bible gives us. We are Bible people. And so we go to the Bible for our answers. I get asked from time to time, what kind of church is New Life Christian Church? What, what, describe it to me. And I, as easy as I can put it, as best I can put it, so you know what? We are a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. That's who we are. We believe God's Word. We center our faith on Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And since we're Bible people, we get our glimpse of the afterlife from the Bible. 
This morning, I want us to spend a little bit of time talking specifically about what happens right after you die. Well, what is that first minute going to be like? The Bible tells us very clearly that our life continues on after the grave. The grave is not the end at all. Rather, the grave is just the beginning of all eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but eternity is a hard thing to get my mind wrapped around. How about you? I gets me, it gets me a little dizzy. I've told you that before when I really sit back and think about it. Because we live in a world that is confined by time. Everything has a beginning and an end. This worship service today has a beginning and it will have an end. This sermon that I'm preaching, it has a beginning and it will have an end. And all God's people said, amen on that one. Amen. Glad, glad there's an end. But eternity is hard to comprehend and many people have tried to describe it. I like this description that I came across a while back. Somebody trying to describe eternity said, eternity is, if you'll imagine, like a sparrow that flew to the Atlantic Ocean and filled its little beak full of water, flew all the way across the United States to the Pacific Ocean and emptied its beak into the Pacific and then rested for a thousand years, flew back to the Atlantic, filled its beak, flew all the way across the United States to the Pacific and emptied its beak and rested for a thousand years. And it continued this way until one ocean was emptied into the next. And then started over, only removing the water from this ocean back to the other. And when the sparrow has finished that, then you have completed perhaps one day in eternity. That's how long a person who has accepted God's gift of everlasting life can hope to spend with our Savior. What happens one minute after you die? That's when eternity begins. Well, we learn from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. We looked at this last week. We'll briefly look at it again. It says that people are destined to die one time, and after that, they are to face judgment. Now, I want to invite you next week to come back, because next week, we're going to specifically talk about judgment day and all that's involved there and, and, and what we are to understand about that. That's next week. But I would like to say just a short word about it right now. The Bible seems to indicate that the final judgment is going to happen right after the return of Christ. So Jesus is going to come back and then the judgment, the final judgment will happen. And we get some of that from things that Jesus told us. Matthew chapter 25 is one of those places Jesus was talking about that time. And he says this in uh, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, Jesus is talking about the return. When, hey, when I come back, and it's going to be a glorious thing, all the angels are with Him. He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. If you read the whole thing that Jesus was teaching that day, you know that the sheep that He put on His right it was like, it's like the righteous people, and they go on into eternity. The goats on his left were the unrighteous, and they go on into eternal torment. And Jesus said, that's how it's going to be at the final judgment. You're going to be divided into two groups, the saved and the unsaved. Well, we're going to deal with all of that next weekend, but the question that I think we have to talk about a little bit when we talk about the afterlife and you talk about how the Bible progresses and what it teaches us is going to happen it's this question. We need to talk about it. 
If we receive our inheritance, and that's heaven, after the final judgment, which takes place after the return of Christ, where in the world are we going to be from the time we die until Jesus returns? Have you ever thought of that question before? You ever thought like, hmm, that's a good question. And if you've never thought about that, he's like, that's all right, I've never thought about that. In other words, what I'm saying is, if we were to die today, but let's just say, let's throw out a number, Jesus doesn't return for 650 more years. Where in the world are we going to be from today and 650 years from now? And let me just say this, there have been many volumes of books filled up debating that very question. There's a lot of unknowns, to be honest with you, but there are some knowns as well. But this has been debated for years and years and years. We've already looked at last week, and we know this very clearly from Scripture, is that our soul lives on after this body dies. This body that we have right now, it's not prepared for eternity. It's not designed to go into eternity. This is a cursed body, if you will. It's breaking down. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I know that's true. It's breaking down, and it's not meant to go on into eternity. That is a consequence of the sin that Adam and Eve brought into this world. That sin is now a punishment that this body can't go on eternally. But our soul does. Our soul is eternal. And so upon death, that our soul goes on and, uh, and, 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 and we live forever. So where in the world are we going to be until the final judgment? Now, there's been some explanations that people have offered over the years. They read the Bible and they'll say, I think it's going to be this. One of those views is this, that some people put forth, and I'm just going to share with you briefly what some of the popular views are. And if you are following along in today's message through the newlifenwa.info page, all of these are listed there. You don't have to write them down, but I've listed them for you. So if you want to go back and reference and all the scripture we're going to look at today, they're all there. And I know some of you use that during the sermon. Others go back and view it and look at it in preparation for your life group meetings this week. But There are some who would say that when you die, you cease to exist. You're no longer around. And then when God deems it necessary for Jesus to come back for the second coming, he will recreate you in your your body and you'll be raised up with Christ and meet him in the air for the second coming and all of it. There's that point of view. That is known specifically as the extinction recreation view. I'm not going to try to get too technical on you, but uh, that's what that view is called. There's another point of view that some people go, you know, it could be this, is that uh, after you die, you go to a a place or there is a time, if you will, that you are Your soul is very much existing, but you are in a deep sleep. This is known as the soul sleep view. Have you ever heard of it? This is where like you're going to go to sleep. And then after the Lord sends Jesus back, you'll be awakened. And it will be like you've been in a long nap. It's like waking up from a long nap. You go, oh, I know some time has passed. But uh, man, how much time has passed? Oh wait, Jesus is coming back. Let's go. It's going to be one of, that's the soul sleep point of view. And where people come with that kind of connection is there are places in the Bible, we'll look at them, one of them today, where it says those who have fallen asleep. Which honestly, in the context and the understanding of the language, that's just another way of saying they have passed away. But they'll say those who have gone to sleep before you are sleeping with their fathers. Some of them take that and say, well, they're, they're just asleep. That's all it is. Well, Maybe not, maybe so, but probably not. 
That's called the soul sleep view. There's another fairly popular point of view, and it goes like this. It's called the instantaneous resurrection view. And so this basically says that when you die, you are immediately given your resurrection body because the Bible talks about getting a, a new heavenly body that's prepared for all eternity. And the, the believer dies, and they are instantaneously transported straight to heaven. You know, they miss the second coming. They miss the final judgment. All of that stuff, they just bypass it. They're instantaneously resurrected. Boom, they're in heaven, and they're right there. There are other viewpoints. Those are some of the three of the more popular ones. It's, like I said, as people have said, you know, I read the Bible and I think it could be this. That's all they're saying. Um, what I'm going to try to do this morning is I'm going to try to share with you as best that I can where I'm at in my study on this subject. What's going to happen right after we die? Now, I don't stand here today before you claiming that I am the grandmaster teacher of all things afterlife, okay? There are plenty of things we don't know. I don't know if I've got every I dotted and every T crossed on this conversation. I'm just going to tell you where I'm at in my study today. And if at a future point, the Lord changes my mind on some of this stuff, I'm never going to tell you because I don't ever want to appear to ever be wrong on anything. So, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I just want to tell you where I'm at in my study today. I'm going to try to explain two points of view for you. And I'm going to tell you up front that I have comfortability with both of these points of view. And you're like, wait a minute, preacher can't have two points of view. Well, on today's subject, I got two points of view. And I'm going to share them with you. And I think by the time we are done with today's message, you're going to understand what I mean by that. When I say there's two points of view that I have on this, all I'm saying is you read the Bible and it could be this way and it, or it could be that way. But either way, it gets you to the same place. And that's why I said I've got some, I'm comfortable with these two points of view, and I just am. Now let me start with the first point of view. The first perspective, if you will, or point of view, um, is that immediately following your death, they, there's this view that says the Bible teaches that your soul obviously lives on, and that as the person who, who, who passes away and moves on into eternity, their soul lives on. And that person is fully aware of everything that's happening, fully aware of where they are at, why they are there, and what's going to be happening while they wait, await the return of Christ and the second coming. Now, this point of view is commonly set up under the discussion under this idea of an intermediate state. Are you familiar with that phrase? An intermediate state. The intermediate state is that time between your death and the final judgment. You know, it's that thing I was talking about, that 650-year time. That is the intermediate state. And I'll be honest with you, there are plenty of scriptures in the Bible that you read and you study out and you go, sounds like there's an intermediate state. So what I want to do is I want to examine a couple of those, those passages. So if you've got your Bible, look to Luke chapter 16. That's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning. Luke chapter 16 there you're going to find a parable that Jesus told to a group of Pharisees. 
Now, a parable, if you don't know what that is, let me tell you. A parable is a story that Jesus told to drive home a point. In fact, um, a lot of Jesus' teaching was in parable form or in story form. And, and you come across these in Scripture, and Jesus, it starts like this. One time there was a man who dot, dot, dot. And you know that Jesus is telling a parable. You know, it's like there was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. He, you know, one of them wandered away, so he left the 99 to go find the one. That's a parable. It's a story. He's driving home a point. That's what we come across in Luke chapter 16. So the parable, the story, starts like this. Let's look in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now this is a pretty depressing story, isn't it? You've got, this, you've got these two guys who couldn't be any more different You've got a rich man who's living in the lap of luxury, and you've got a poor man who is described as a beggar named Lazarus who is physically unhealthy. He's got sores all over his body, and all he is, he just wants to eat the leftovers that come off the rich man's table. Now let's be clear, and I'm, I'm going to offer some qualifiers as we walk down through this story, but I want to be clear about something. This is not a story about having a lot of wealth. This is not a story that Jesus told that's saying having a lot of wealth is wrong. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says that it's wrong to have a lot of wealth. Money is not the problem. What is the problem? The love of money. So this is not really a story about that. Jesus told this story to a group of Pharisees who were religious leaders of the day who were living lives of luxury and completely neglecting the poor. They had it made and could have cared less. And so the heart of this story is really poking at the Pharisees and their lack of compassion and their lack of representation of God in their life and how they are just soaking it up why so many people are in need. This is at the heart of the heart. That's what this story is about. And in doing so, Jesus tells us something about the afterlife as well. Look at verse 23. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So there's some things happening in this parable right now. Jesus is telling it to show how radically different the eternal destinies are between the righteous and the unrighteous. It's also another point in Scripture that confirms that your soul lives on. It, there is a next step. But this story is really about a condemnation of these guys that had no compassion on the poor. And so Jesus is like, you're unrighteous people. And there is a radically different place that unrighteous people go than righteous people. The beggar, Lazarus, at death, he was taken to what is described as Abraham's side. Now we're going to put a word with that that many people do. They'll call this paradise. Or they might say, at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 speaks of that. But to a Jewish person, 
that would have heard this story that Jesus told, they would have understood that Abraham's side was a place for the righteous. That's where the righteous go. I mean, this is Father Abraham. This is the father of many nations. This is the father of the Jews. If anybody is with God, it's going to be Abraham. And so Lazarus is with Abraham at Abraham's side. You know what? That's a place for the righteous. No question. The rich man depending on what translation you're reading, says he went to hell or he went to Hades. And we learn in the Bible that Hades is a place of torment. However, in Jesus' parable, the rich man who's in Hades, he could see Lazarus who was in paradise. It even says in verse 23 that he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, I need to offer another qualifier here. This is a parable. This is a story. It's an illustration. Uh, It's to make a point. I do not believe that Jesus, with this parable, is giving us an exact play-by-play of what happens right when you die. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, take special note because this is exactly how it's going to go down. I don't get that. I look at the context. Why is Jesus telling this story? But that's not his goal with this parable. Jesus is showing us the contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. The contrast between the two places that the righteous and the unrighteous end up in the afterlife. Lazarus is in a blissful place. That's Jesus' goal. The rich man, this one that had no compassion, was an unrighteous man, he was in torment. So one was with God and one wasn't. Let's keep reading verse 24. So he called to him. Now, this is the rich man in Hades. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. He begs out, I just need a drop of water. This is just one of a number of places in the Bible where we get this connection that there is torture, heat, agony, fire for the unrighteous. That's what he's experiencing. But, after, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, he's saying they can go to synagogue. They can read the scriptures. They know what the scriptures teach. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. Why aren't they listening to those guys? No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Do you understand? This rich man understood that there was no repentance in his heart, and that's what landed him there. It's interesting how aware he is of why he is where he is. Repentance. They need to repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So there are many that look at this parable and they in other places as well as clear evidence of this so-called intermediate state. 
Upon death, you'll either go to the presence of God or you will be in Hades or torment. Those in Hades will absolutely know that they are there because of the choices that they made in this life. You might notice that the rich man that was in Hades, he never argued the fact that he should be in Hades. He's not arguing that fact. All he was begging for was some relief. All he was begging for was somebody to please go tell my brothers so they don't have to come here too. And in the afterlife, if, it, if this is how it plays out, there will be absolutely no communicating between paradise and Hades. And the fact in this story that he looked up and saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus, it does not mean that paradise and Hades are within viewing distance of each other. Jesus is not giving us a topography of paradise and Hades with this story. He's driving home a point that the eternal destinies of the righteous and the unrighteous couldn't be any more different. So the rich man wanted to warn his brothers and Abraham shut him down. Not going to happen. Sounds like a terrible place, doesn't it? At the end of the story, Jesus throws in a really interesting point. Did you catch it? Verse 31. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and they don't listen to the prophets, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I believe Jesus is making a direct reference to himself. Because he knows that in a short while he too will be killed, but he will raise to life three days later. He knows this is all going to happen. And he says, if you don't believe it already, I don't think you're going to be convinced even if somebody does come back from the dead. And guess what's going to happen? Somebody is going to come back to dead from the dead. It's going to be me, and you're probably not going to believe me either. It's an interesting thing. Now, this parable is loaded. Can you repeat that with me? Say, I agree. This parable is loaded. Can you say that? This parable is loaded. Friends, I could spend an entire series, a whole month, talking about this parable and all the implications and the nuances and what it could mean and what it, it doesn't mean, but I just don't have time to do that today or going to invest the time to do that. You're perfectly capable of doing that on your own. But what this parable does do for us today is that it affirms three things. And the three things that it does affirm for us is this. The first one, it does affirm that we live on after death. And I hope you picked that up in this story. The grave is not the end. Just like the rich man and the Lazarus, they died, but it was not the end of them. They kept going. That's an affirmation. Jesus affirms that. The second thing that Jesus affirms in this story is this. Jesus seems to affirm that one minute after we die, people are going to go somewhere. There are some that are going to go to the presence of God, and there are some that will not. And Jesus seems to affirm that. And I think we can take that to the bank. Now, in this particular example... One went to Abraham's side, or paradise, a blissful place. One went to Hades, a place of great suffering. The third thing that Jesus affirms for us in this parable is that one minute after we die, we will be fully aware of what's going on, fully aware of where we are at, and why we are there. So in this perspective, paradise it's not heaven yet because the timeline of scripture seems to indicate that heaven and it comes after the final judgment this is not heaven but paradise is very heaven-like 
And Hades, this is not hell. Remember, hell is reserved for demons and, and the devil and, and all the unrighteous who will be cast into the lake of fire after the final judgment. So this isn't hell being described here, but it's hell-like. And it'll either be, from this point of view, either in heaven or, or, or paradise or in Hades while we wait for the second coming of Jesus, when we will come out of paradise and join Jesus in the air at the second coming. We'll get into that in just a minute. So those who wake up in paradise are guaranteed heaven. Those who wake up in Hades are guaranteed hell. Now a question that you may be wondering right now is this. That sounds like purgatory. I grew up in Catholic church. Is this purgatory? What is this? I'm confused. Let, let me just tell you. Um, it's not purgatory. There, there, this is not what we're talking about here. Um, in the Catholic doctrine, there is a teaching about purgatory. And in purgatory, as I, as I understand it, I'm not a Catholic, so I'm not a scholar in all their doctrines, but as I understand their teachings on purgatory, um, it is a place where those who are on their way to heaven or supposed to be in heaven or destined for heaven, they go to purgatory to undergo purification so that they can achieve the holiness required to get to heaven. Friends, what I'm talking about, it's not purgatory. It's not a doctrine the Christian church ascribes to. I'm talking about what Erwin Lutzer said, and I read this quote last week, I'll read it again. It says, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you'll either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you've never known it. Either way, your future is irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. So it's not purgatory. It's not. So that's one place in the Bible that people look at and they go, there seems to be an intermediate state where we wait for the second coming of Jesus. Now, there's some other scriptures. I'll go through them quickly with you. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 3, it's the transfiguration of Jesus' text. People look at this one, too, as evidence of such. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, there's a lot that could be said about what's happening here, but where have Moses and Elijah been all this time? You know, their soul lives on forever. They have been with the Lord. And there is a moment that they are given with Jesus, this transfigured moment that they had together. But Moses and Elijah, very much still around. Their souls, because we are eternal, they're there. They go, they're, they're got to be somewhere. If we're waiting for heaven, we looked at this passage the last couple of weeks. We'll briefly mention again while Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's two criminals, and one criminal looked at Jesus before he died and he said, Lord, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, is Jesus talking about a blissful place of, of emotions and, or what? No, I think maybe he's talking about a real place. Jesus gave up his spirit, and his spirit went where? The presence of God. He says, you will be with me right now today in paradise. So from this perspective, Jesus was talking about a real place. 
Another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, this is where Paul is encouraging the church who had been suffering a great deal, and he's trying to encourage them and say, your suffering won't be like this forever. Let me tell you what's coming. What's coming our way? He says this in verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Let me stop right there real quick. He's talking about the day that Jesus comes again, the second coming. He said there are those that have died in Christ before Jesus comes, and they're going to rise up with Jesus. Now this is exciting news, friends. They're going to come from somewhere, they're going to be gathered with Jesus, and they're going to they're come, and then those of us who are still alive, he said, like, if you don't experience death, and the only way you won't experience death is if Jesus comes back before you die. So those of us that are still around, here's what's going to happen. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, that's Jesus, will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Friends, that's a whole sermon by itself. But there's this thought that the dead in Christ, those who have already died in Christ will be risen up. The res- this is at the resurrection and, and we will be caught up with Jesus. That's going to happen first. And then after that, verse 17, we who are still alive, who never had to taste death, and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's why I say there's a lot of good news when you talk about the afterlife. It's an encouraging conversation. It's not meant to be a scary one. Encourage one another with these words. One more passage. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. This is a, a glimpse that John has of what is to come. And there's a lot that can be said about this. But just listen. People look at this and go, there's an intermediate state. Just like those that were caught up with Jesus, they came from somewhere. It's probably this intermediate state. Revelation 6, 9 says this. When he opened the fifth seal, he saw under the altar. This is kind of a glimpse of the afterlife. He saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had made maintained these are martyrs they called out in a loud voice how long sovereign lord holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood in other words they're saying we've been waiting a long time for you to wrap things up is what they're saying how long do we got to wait to our reward then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer and that's good news for us until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So people look at that and say, there's souls that are alive and well and awake and they're even begging out to God, don't you think it's time? But the Lord is patient. And that's a good thing. So I've thrown a lot of information out to you. You didn't know you were going to get all this today, did you? Let me kind of summarize this for you from this perspective. That one minute after we die, the righteous will be taken into God's presence, or some call it paradise, and it will be an absolutely wonderful place, 
And the unrighteous will go to Hades, a place of torment, of agony, and regret. Those in paradise are absolutely guaranteed a place in heaven after the second coming. And those in Hades are guaranteed to be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his demons after the final judgment. Now, I am personally comfortable with that interpretation of Scripture. Somebody were to say to me, this is how I think it's going to go down. And of course, there's more layers to this discussion. But it said, I believe there's an enemy state that we wait for the final judgment. Okay, I'm comfortable with that. I'm not uncomfortable with that conversation. But there's another perspective too that I'm also comfortable with. And I'm going to try to explain it to you right now. And it's, it's, um, I'm going to be honest with you, it's extremely technical. And so I'm going to need you to, everybody just kind of lean forward a little bit. It's kind of more of a, 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 a listening posture. Because this one, it's, it's really detailed. And that perspective is this. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ when you die, you've accepted God's free gift of salvation, you've united with Christ and you're living for Him, if you die as a follower of Jesus Christ, this next perspective teaches this. You're going to be just fine no matter what happens. And I'm really comfortable with that perspective too. You're going to be just fine. So whether it is all of those things that I just described, or we go right up into heaven, or it's not exactly how we think, let me tell you, one thing I do know is if you die in Christ, you're going to be just fine, and you've got nothing to worry about. We may not be able to pinpoint the exact details, and I'll be honest with you, we may not be able to do that, but we can absolutely pinpoint the exact outcome, and that outcome for believers is exactly clear and it's going to be wonderful it's going to be fantastic it's going to be beyond our wildest dreams the bible says for a believer when you are absent from your body you are going to be present with the lord and that is going to be a wonderful place wherever it is whether we go straight to heaven we go to paradise we're a part of this or part of that i'm telling you if you die in Christ, you're going to be just fine. And I am really comfortable with that perspective. Before we go here this morning, I want to ask another question. Why in the world is knowing any of this important? Especially even if you ascribe to the point, the second point of view of like, hey, if I die in Christ, everything's going to be just fine. The outcome is going to be great no matter what the details are exactly. Why is it important for us as a church family to spend some time thinking through and talking through and learning some of these things. Well, I'll tell you why. Because knowing what happens one minute after you die gives you perspective. It gives you perspective on every single area of your life. And I believe with all my heart that in a church this size with four different services, there are people that are going to be in here this weekend who are needing a change of perspective on their life. There's this perspective shift that needs to happen. And when you study about the afterlife and you know what's coming next and that it's all going to be okay for a believer... It absolutely changes your perspective on everything. It gives us perspective on our purpose for this world. 
Our purpose is to follow Christ and to live for him every single day and so that we'll live with him in all eternity. Friends, if you know what's coming next, it gives you perspective on how to live today and that's to live for the Lord. Changes your perspective. It gives us perspective on pain and suffering. It absolutely does. Because at the end of the day, you know that this won't last forever no matter what. Some of you are like, I'm in pain every day. I'm suffering through this situation. I don't know how this is going to come together. I, I've got all these unknowns and, and I've got suffering and things hurt and things are painful emotionally. Friends, you know what's coming next. You know that won't last forever. It gives us perspective on the unknown. Anybody wrestling through some unknowns? Well, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And I don't know what's going to happen here. And I don't know if I'm going to have this job next week. And I don't know if my kids are this. And I, there's a lot of unknowns in this world. But you know what? When you are thinking about the afterlife, it changes your perspective. Because you know what it tells us? I can trust God. That's the perspective change. I got unknowns in this life. But I know the one who knows everything. And I'm going to trust him. You can have that when you know what comes next. It gives us perspective, believe it or not, on our finances. Because when you know what's coming, you know that you're going to have an abundance one day. It gives us perspective on our jobs. One day all this hard work is going to come to an end and everything that we're going to do for eternity is going to all be for God and it's going to be wonderful. It's not going to be work. It gives us perspective on raising our families. When you know what is to come and you think that through the eyes of your family, then it gives you perspective on all I want in this world is for my children to know God. So we can be in eternity forever together where we will absolutely know our family in heaven. That's why I talk about one day there is going to be such a reunion in heaven it might take eternity to contain it all. You know, for so many, our perspective right now is, I want my kid to be the greatest baseball player so he can get a co go to college for free and all this stuff. I don't care about any of that. I care that my children know God. It gives us perspective on our relationships. When you know that you're going to live eternally, then our relationships on earth, you can say, I'm going to put God first in this relationship because I'm living for eternity, not for this. It gives us perspective. Put God first in that dating relationship. Put God first in this marriage. Put God first in raising your kids. That, finally, why is knowing that about the afterlife important? Because it gives us perspective on dying. The grave is not the end. It's just the beginning. And when you know what comes next, you can face death without an ounce of fear at all. Friends, I'm not scared of dying. I'm a little scared of how it's going to happen. But I know where I'll be. Do you know where you'll be? And I ask that question because that really is at the heart of any study on the afterlife. Because, yeah, we're talking all about what happens after the grave, one minute after the grave. But I'm going to tell you, what happens one minute after you die is not nearly as important as what happens one minute before you die. 
And it's not as important as what happens 10 years before you die or 20 years before you die or 50 years before you die. Because if you die in Christ, you're going to be just fine. This is all about how we live today. That's why Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man wasn't so much about the afterlife. It was about how you live today. So I ask you, how, how are you living today? Are you walking with Jesus every day? Are you living in this world, like the Bible says, as an alien and as a stranger in this place, knowing that the earth is not your home, that we were made for another place, that our home is in heaven, our citizenship is with the Father in heaven? Are you living every single day of your life as a stranger in this land, but as a citizen in heaven? That's really what this is about. And if this series can help you change your perspective on a whole lot of things in life, then that's a good thing too. But the heart of it, how are you doing? Are you walking with Jesus? And if you're not, well, we can fix that while there's still time.